And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Good Sunday afternoon, and welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Apple, and today we're going to have uh, a couple of uh, guests that we haven't seen in a while, but we always, always welcome their input. Uh, we're going to uh, Nathan Deshamaker, who is a, uh, a cattle rancher, raises uh, registered feeder cattle in central Montana, and also works on public lands issues and private land issues in Montana and in other parts of the country. He's doing a major program. He's just getting uh, on on the agenda now in Kansas. He's going to be working with uh, local government groups there. Uh, also, I see Dick Ewing is going to be joining us. I thought maybe Dick wouldn't be able to join us until the last half of the show, but it looks like Dick is on. And we're going to be talking about grizzly habitat and some of the uh, crazy programs going on in the state of Washington now uh, that are really uh, unbelievable, some of the stuff that they're trying to do. So uh, with that said, uh, Nathan, welcome to the program. I'll, I'll welcome you first because you were uh, scheduled to be the first one on. I see you got your herd behind you. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, <laughs> you're right. It has been a little while, uh, a few months anyways, since been on the program. So it's it's good to be see your face and uh, be back on the program. So uh, and I'm glad Dick was able to come on. Like I said, thought he might come in later. But um, so, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. There's sure a lot uh, going on, um, as you and most of us are well aware of. So. Hopefully we can have a pretty good productive conversation today. Well, I don't think we'll have any problem finding subject matter because after the uh, COP28 conference that uh, uh, just ended here a couple, about a month and a half ago, um, the again, every time you say COP, it, uh, it, it makes my skin crawl and not because I'm afraid of the police. But the fact is... Uh, Anytime the UN dignitaries get together to talk about the environment, we know we're in trouble. And that happened again. This time it was in Dubai. 
Um, and they talked openly about how they're going to basically make the American people and productive industrial economies pay for reparations uh, because we've been raping the environment. And in fact, if it weren't for the United States and uh, many European countries, uh, most of the world would be living uh, in almost Stone Age conditions. And the way these people want to line the uh, uh, line the resources of the world uh, into their own pockets and uh, create a world where everything that happens is dictated by a bunch of uh, commie bureaucrats, uh, we're going to have one heck of a mess if, uh, if we allow this stuff to go on. And right at the center of that, and this is, of course, uh, with that herd behind you, very significant, is uh, the end of uh, humanity being able to eat uh, protein through red meat. Uh, they're planning on us being a bunch of bug eaters, and uh, needless to say, that's about as attractive as uh, uh, <laughs> eating the stuff that comes out of the back end of the cattle. Either way, I'm not real thrilled with it. So uh, let, let's uh, let's talk about some of the things. You're, you've been working on a lot of programs. I kind of want to hear you and Dick talk about uh, some of the things that you're trying to get moving forward now to expose this. Yeah, so you know based on what you just said we can i can kind of start with what what connects to, to to what you're talking about in the international arena the conference of parties for these climate uh conferences where these nations come together and think they have the and it's actually not even nations that are coming together there's delegates from nations and then a whole bunch of uh ceos of nonprofit foundations that largely uh, populate those conferences so there's a huge problem in relationship to understanding the American system of government and the constitutional rule of law, state sovereignty, private property rights, central planning even at the state or national level, which is what we're facing domestically, is an intrusion and violates all those principles. Let, let nonetheless, the national or international level, I guess, um, trying to set uh, uniform policy and regulations to direct how producers are to develop their products and how and what consumers, because when you, when you control the producer on what he's able to produce, you inadvertently and indirectly control the alternatives available to the consumer. Um, if you, people aren't just going to eat bugs. In other words, you have to top down central economic planning and regulation force out what the consumer presently demands in the market and replace it with a ready-made substitute. And we know from history, government uh, fails in central economic planning time and again. But with that said, I haven't been as, I'm usually really watchful of the COP conferences and the international stuff, and I'm tracking with that. But the rate at which those priorities in the international climate realm are being implemented through our federal agencies, through rulemaking, regulations, and amending and revising uh, resource management plans that touch millions and millions of acres of 
lands situated primarily in the West is happening. All that is happening at a, at a ex- extremely fast rate. So I've been more busy on the home front, uh, trying to equip the record where I'm able to, along with some folks I'm able to work with and, and get what needs to be put into the process to call out what these agencies are implementing. That'll have a huge impact. It'll lead to what we're seeing in Europe right now. You know, we're not to the point we have to be filling the streets with tractors to make a statement, but I would submit as that that's just assigned to us that we need to stand up now. You don't wait till then to, to make your case and represent life, liberty and property in limited government and free markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're spot on with that. If you wait that long, it's too late. But it's interesting because the the host of that uh, conference in Dubai, uh, you know, obviously it's an oil producing nation and area. And uh, some of the uh, OPEC countries that were part of this delegation actually spoke out against uh, many of the programs, the so-called decarbonization of the world by eliminating fossil fuels. And I found that interesting because uh, the host of this conference, and I can't remember his name, but uh, a fairly young man uh, spoke openly about how the uh, decarbonization of the world and the getting rid of fossil fuels and replacing them with so-called clean energy was a pipe dream, and that it wasn't actually very practical to even think about that. I was, I, I really got a kick out of that because, um, you know, let let's have more of these conferences in oil-producing countries. I think the next one, if I'm not mistaken, is in Kazakhstan or one other oil-producing country, and. All we need to do is stack a few of these together where uh, they start uh, questioning the the uh, common sense of the COP conference from the top down and bingo, we're, we're making a difference. So <clears throat> let's hope that works. But anyway, Nathan, um, you know, you are working on things in the United States, uh, programs in the United States, because we do have rule of law here, even though many of the federal agencies would prefer to ignore that rule of law. And many of the federal uh, agencies and NGOs try to pretend they don't exist. They do exist. And that's why you are so heavily involved in this, reminding government that they do have to play by the rules. And if they fail to play by the rules, then there's going to be consequences. Yeah, I would, I would say so. Uh, You know, I think the way to put it from my perspective, and it's just the foundation of our Republic is individual people are required to maintain liberty and carry, carry the torch forward. I guess I've put it this way. You can't, there's no multi-generational without the next generation uh, stepping up and carrying that forward. So there's a vigilance in our Republican form of government where each person, um, citizen engagement and involvement uh, to bring accountability into decision-making, 
And that's why our founders are so brilliant in establishing government that boils down ultimately to the local level um, where we have our our counties, our municipalities, our states, which are all aggregates of sovereign jurisdiction. And it's designed that way to protect not the states, but the individual person and his dignity and his rights to property and to life and the equal rights and immunities under the law of his fellow um, citizen. So the very idea of a centrally planned framework of regulation, management, and economic uh, decision-making runs totally opposite direction um, in relationship to the those realities, the design of, of our government. So, you know, that's kind of the more philosophical context, but what I try to do and what uh, really we all should try to do to some extent in life, but I do it in particular in government process, is to bring those principles forward and reassert them. Our founding fathers, when they opposed tyranny in the early days of this country in colonial America, they didn't appeal to English statutes that much. I mean, it, it was there. They were What they really appealed to were the principles, first principles uh, of law. And they were referencing the English Bill of Rights, the English Constitution, Magna Carta. You know, they went behind all the modern bureaucratic junk that they were so upset about in their colonies where the crown was reaching into every aspect of their businesses, their lives, and their personal associations and affairs. And they appealed to that crown, the King of England, as Englishmen, reaching back to those first principles found in those organic documents, which makes up English common law across multi-centuries, culminating in the American Republic Declaration of Independence and the establishment of the United States. So we're losing that. All those fundamental principles that create those liberties through the separation of powers and local government and self-determination and self-government is being eroded away through central planning. Climate change is a huge mechanism to accomplish that. So that, you know, that can kind of lead into, I think, maybe where this discussion may go somewhat, and that is, so what exactly is the federal government through executive process and departments and agencies actually doing that's implementing these top-down initiatives that correspond with these international agreements and climate objectives. We'll get into that discussion because uh, obviously uh, Donald Trump um, took us out of the uh, Paris Accords and uh, as soon as China and Joe got uh, selected for uh, resident, um, he, he uh, basically rejoined the Paris Accords and now we're, you know, we're right in the middle of this with uh, the 30 by 30 and all the different crap that uh, the federal agencies are now implementing again, just like they did during Bill Clinton's uh, executive reign and also the Obama administration. And uh, again, you said it, uh, this is not following legislative uh, dictates, it's following executive fiat. And uh, this is not in accordance with rule of law. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. There's a executive branch 
of all of these uh, priorities. Well, let's just start with this. Just before Christmas, um, the Forest Service came out with multiple uh, notices on the Federal Register, and that included, it was November 28th, 2023, they initiated a policy change to replace Forest Service Manual 1900, Chapter 1940, for inventory, monitoring, and assessment, and that applies to the entire Forest Reserves. Um, and they want to bring in indigenous tribal ecological knowledge as a scientific baseline for uh, for those inventorying and monitoring frameworks, as well as uh, climate change and some other things. December 18th, a couple weeks later, there was a notice of intent to amend Region 5 and 6 in the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, California, I believe, Idaho, the 1994 amendments and amend those regional plans for the Northwest. And then two days later, the U.S., Forest Service dropped on the Federal Register a, a, uh, an amendment to a plan to amend 128 management plans for the units of the National Forest System, which is all of them virtually, to include and prioritize nature-based solutions for decarbonization by conserving existing and recruiting future old growth forest conditions and to monitor their conditions across planning areas of the National Forest System. So all of those items that the Forest Service dumped right before Christmas, which common periods are now summing up for, um, were not directed by the Congress through any inventory or monitoring or assessment statutes that the Congress has passed for the Forest Service to manage timber resources uh, for those purposes. Um, that is all this, this old growth inventory um, because the inventories required in the forest laws is for multiple use sustained yield purposes of maintaining continuous flow of mature growth trees for the benefit of the American people and localized wood products industries. That's what the laws say. That's the priorities for inventorying and monitoring. So their, their inventorying for old growth is about seek carbon sequestration. So, and, and like I said, that didn't come out of the Congress. That came out of Executive Order 14072 uh, that this inventorying process is pursuant to. Um, and yet again, this is all top down. They've pulled this inventorying process out of the local field offices where, where the inventories and the planning and management decisions should be taking place. And they're doing a uniform top down application to all 128 this is more like Soviet-style land use planning, not constitutional Republican government, full coordination with local people, local counties. Counties haven't even been in an advanced way noticed directly within the Forest Service units of this process. So it's huge problems. And Dick, Dick can speak to that as well with his knowledge of the wood products side of things and and he's he actually lives in region five and six and in Washington of the Northwest Forest Plan, so he has more knowledge of uh, the issues on that as well. Yeah, in fact, that's a good segue to get Dick into the conversation. Um, Dick, obviously, talking about uh, carbon sequestration and maintaining old uh, old growth forests. Uh, you know, you're a witch product guy. I am too. I'm actually uh, 
uh, you know, went through the training program and was certified as a, uh, a forester in the state of Montana. And uh, old growth forests are not the best at uh, sequestering carbon. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, different uh, growth forests where you're talking multi-story forests uh, are usually the best for if you want to talk real science about carbon sequestration. But the fact is, is uh, if, if you want to have the best management of uh, carbon sequestration, we all, ought to all live in a log house. I live in one. I know that's the best sequestration in the world of carbon is uh, living in a log house. Anyway, it has a huge impact on the forest products industry because they're, uh, they're warping the whole scientific program uh, to maintain something that isn't scientifically maintained. Is that, uh, Nick, I, I guess I'm leading in to let you uh, kind of take it from there. Thank you, Dan. I just wanted to uh, agree with you in general on that. <clears throat> I think uh, when you look at the West Coast, uh, the whole controversy on where we are in these forest reserves actually started with the spotted owl. You probably remember that whole Bingo. controversy. Yeah. Now, the real issue that I isolated in that uh, process was the harvest of old growth and the belief that it was being over-harvested. So what they did is they utilized the spotted owl to shut down the whole thing, and that uh, resulted in a loss of 60,000 to 100,000 forest product jobs. Mm -hmm. And we're still reeling from that consequence today. So we don't have enough workers right now if we needed to treat forests for thinning and wildfire control, for example, and even a commercial harvest to do the work in our forest as a result. The hope of getting back to point one is going to take a long time if there is a concerted effort to do that. Mm -hmm. We've got, Dick, and you tell me if I'm wrong on this, but the latest uh, statistics that I saw on forest products right now, we're getting uh, something like 65% of all of our forest products are coming out of Canada because we don't have the mills or the jobs uh, or the production facilities available to, uh, to d do the necessary timber harvesting. Well, that's true. Uh, one of the statistics I ran across, for example, is uh, with the loss of mills, the minimum driving distance to get a log from the forest to a mill is 100 miles. Mm -hmm. So that puts the upfront cost higher than uh, what they would be if we had more local mills. The other thing is, is the... Uh, Production in the United States, where there is significant production, is in the southeast. Mm -hmm. All the softwoods that the uh, uh, Northwest and uh, Oregon used to provide are coming from the southeast, where they have a market share. 
But like you say, here in the Northwest, the closest market is Canada. So we're going to get in most of the Western states products from Canada, from the Tungus uh, forest up there. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons they're not shutting that down is that it is old growth, for one thing. And it's the largest wildflower source problem in Canada right now. So they realize practically that they have to harvest that forest to have uh, less forest fires in their country. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I I had the great pleasure going to uh, Germany with uh, uh, University of Montana Forestry Group. Um, all this has been 10 years, 10, 11 years ago. And it's amazing. But in Germany, uh, there's very little uh, forest land that's owned by the state anymore. Most of it is owned by private individuals. And uh, Germany, who have figured out how to continue to use the resource in perpetuity and regrow and do all the the good management practices, um, they have uh, a higher um, forest products industry than any state in the United States now. And it's because they actually understand that private property is a great source of timber and they know how to manage it. Well, I think that's the problem uh, here in this country. We still have a large amount of public lands, which, as we have seen, are vulnerable to environmental activism and impracticality, whereas if it's privately owned, they do not have that sort of access to manipulate as well as they do in the public sector. So that's part of our problem here. We visited uh, Switzerland found out similar observations when we are, were in Switzerland. And they even have cows and goats running all over the place in their forest, and we're trying to get rid of them. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, what's interesting about it, all of the um, uh, ground growth is very lush. There's quite a variety of plants and so on with all the grazing that's going on on the alpine level. So you had to go and wonder what's happening in our perspective here, that's not making sense. No, it, it's typical when you let the government manage anything, they mismanage it. And I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. Um, you know, if it's not your ground, if you don't have a, a vested economic, personal vested economic interest in it, uh, you're not going to use as good a management tools as individuals will. Well, that's a problem with the public square because you have too many voices saying how to do it. And then the other aspect that I think uh, Nate and I are realizing is even the agencies themselves don't know what the rules are. They have actually the legal position to say, no, this can't happen because then we are violating our statutory responsibility and judicial responsibility to the public if we take it in this direction. I have not heard uh, that sort of an answer coming out of the agencies locally in the time that I have been involved with it. 
No, I think you're. I think you're right. And of course, this is something that Nathan t- talks about quite a bit. Is the fact that uh, we've gone from legislative, congressional uh, law and mandates to rulemaking at the agency level, and it really doesn't have any constitutional basis. It's just a matter of making rules to benefit what they want to accomplish accomplish on a on a short-term level. Well, I think so. And then you see how the politics play into that with the uh, uh, 1994 uh, Northwest Forest Plan is because they politicized the spotted owl and did not address the real issue of over-harvest and how the agencies could, through the concept of sustainable uh, yield, actually uh, provide the proof of what they are doing for maintaining sustainable harvest. So multiple use of sustainable harvest. Uh, What I'm finding out in doing the comments is they, uh, for this uh, issue that came up in the Northwest, is that they're still going along with the spotted owl and the old growth thing fits into two objectives, setting aside reserves for the spotted owl and preserving carbon sequestration. But they have a problem with the spotted owl issue. And that is there is a competing species that uses the same habitat and uh, seems to be getting along very well, but the spotted owl isn't. And part of it is due to the fact that uh, the species is hybridizing. So is that the real issue? If uh, one species can live perfectly well in the habitat and the spotted owl isn't, what is the issue with the spotted owl? It certainly can't be the habitat. Right. So now you have the issue taken away that uh, the spotted owl is the issue but it's more back to forest management and it's interesting they're even admitting that in order to restore old growth uh, forest and preserve them they have to do the same steps as you would go through to have a commercial harvest it just won't let you take the trees yeah it's amazing how they play the games with the science and the and the policies. I mean, they're interchangeable. Yeah, that's right. Well, the other thing too is uh, what these policies do is just exactly what we're seeing in the Northwest. We have poorly managed forests that have contributed to massive wildfires, and we have no workforce and the rural communities that depend upon uh, resource uh, economy have been devastated here mm-hmm. in the Northwest. And so Okanagan County, where I live, is one of the poorest counties in the state. And we have a hybrid population where the median uh, income for most residents in Okanagan County is around 50 to 57,000 a year. Then we have the computer uh, absent office uh, personnel coming over and installing their computers and the average salary in one section in the valley where I live is $200,000 a year. 
So what happens is that uh, their priorities take effect and begin limiting even the rest of the priorities of the county. Mm -hmm. And so you have a sector that is losing economic viability at the uh, bent towards the benefit of those who don't. Yeah. Well, and your uh, your background is uh, perfect because it shows what uh, uh, you know what fire can do in an uh, unmanaged uh, forest. And harvesting is an absolutely essential part of good forestry. Uh, if if you don't harvest mature trees and uh, clear out a lot of the understory brush and things like that. Um, you're not going to have a healthy forest. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that our regulations in like the uh, Forest and Rangeland Resource Recovery Act points out the correlations to some of these points where the uh, Secretary of the Interior or Agriculture, whoever's managing a particular forest, must harvest, harvest trees at the mean incremental uh, value of that tree. And mm -hmm. when you uh, do uh, harvest at that point, you're halfway through the declining period of the maturity of that tree. And you're mm -hmm. taking out the mature wood that's going to become a liability in the next five or 10 years right. for the health of the forest. And that's the stage that also happens to be if you want to talk about habitat for the spiraled owl, if you have a mosaic forest with the management towards old growth, you're going to have the habitat there for well, quite a wide variety of species, including mm -hmm. the spotted owl. So it's not the old growth that's the issue, the absence of it. It's whether or not you're managing the forest for its maximum yield and under a sustained uh, process. Well, as a matter of fact, that that is also the optimum point. Um, you know, if you're talking carbon sequestration, after you get past that point, there's virtually no additional carbon sequestration. But new trees and uh, growing trees at uh, multi levels in a forest are the ones that are actually sequestering the carbon. So. Old growth forests need to be managed if you want to have a healthy environment, very simply. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's interesting in my research I found in the resource plan, uh, resource assessment plan in 2020, uh, the mission of that very same thing, because they were are required to uh, assess the old growth and the potential for sequestering carbon in the uh, national forest. And the point they made is that over time, the maturity of the forest will outstrip the harvest. And therefore, there will be a decline in the carbon uh, sink aspect of the old growth forest as the forest head in that direction. Mm -hmm. And their observation was that maintaining a dynamic replacement of the forest with young growing trees and using the old growth in uh, wood products and uh, services is actually going to store more carbon over time 
It's just that you can't measure it in a fixed moment the way that they want to do it under a natural-based economic system that they're proposing for uh, offsetting uh, carbon use uh, by people who need to do that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you use that to generate uh, money uh, and manage forests for a reserve for that purpose, you're actually defeating what the carbon provides. It's actually more products, a better uh, growth of plants that is probably going to make the earth more productive for a growing population than if you try to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. and, and the sad part about it is uh, after it reaches a certain point where uh, the, the forest health is being very, very negatively impacted by overgrowth, by insects, bugs, and disease, so forth. Then you end up with catastrophic, uh, catastrophic wildfires and uh, is exactly the opposite of carbon sequestration. <laughs> you know, I mean, these people, they can't possibly make a worse scenario than uh, turn a bunch of environmentalists loose in a forest and have them come up with policy objectives. Well, you've got that point, right? Because uh, if we just look at the last 10 years between California and the Northwest, the number of forest fires and how much acreage has been burned and carbon released, it'll probably take us a century to overcome that fact. Yeah, Dick, and I'm, I'm like I said, I'm, I'm uh, living the ultimate dream. I'm the ultimate carbon sequester. I've got a, <laughs> a log house with 14-inch logs in it. Uh, I, I, uh, I am absolutely proud of the fact that I, I've done such a great job of carbon sequestration. Well, I have a log house too, mm -hmm. for the same reason, built it myself from lo uh, raw logs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also make furniture. So mm -hmm. I like prime quality wood, and right now the... Uh, lumber industry is uh, confined to 10-inch uh, top stems and a very small base, and you have a lot of waste for the amount of wood that you get out of it, and it's low quality, often with a lot of knots in it. That's right. Yeah, and I, you know, you mentioned the southeast, uh, you know, this uh, long needle uh, white pine down there, yellow pine, and they, and they, uh, it's plantation trees. So the the quality of the wood is okay because it is a plantation tree, but um, you know again we're getting back to the same thing in Germany. Almost all of the land is privately owned; uh, very little of it is state land. And now in the United States, they're trying to take more and more private land and make it into state land or you know federal land. And uh, that'll have exactly the opposite effect of good forestry. Well, it does. And I've had the experience of working with longleaf pine. Do you know it's almost as hard as white oak? That's a kind of amazing wood for uh, a conifer. Yeah, yeah. I think you need, a, I think the key here, though, is old growth doesn't appear in statute or regulation. 
that I'm aware of, that I've seen, at least in the forest acts and the forest laws, it's not really there explicitly in statute. They use terms like merchantable timber and mature growth. And as Dick alluded to, the, the Resource Planning Act, 1974, explicitly the Congress lays out the priorities for which the agencies are supposed to inventory and, and monitor and manage those lands according to the principles of multiple use, sustained yield. So you need a, a mature growth framework to, to harvest and manage for it. And at the points you guys made, the carbon sequestration, Dick said that brilliantly in how uh, managing according to the existing legal framework and statute actually would probably end up sequestering more carbon over time than allowing these trees to just become decadent as, as in these old growth stands in a fire hazard or whatever else. I think the point, though, is is we the agencies are implementing priorities that have not been directed or delegated by the Congress. They're actually implementing priorities that are in direct contravention to what the Congress has clearly delegated in relationship to how the forest reserves are to be managed. Continuous flow of timber, and even the uh, Code of Federal Regulations agree um, with the organic statutes on this, uh, 36 CFR 221.3 under timber management and planning says, provide so far as feasible an even flow of national forest timber in order to facilitate the stabilization of communities and of opportunities for employment. But this rule for this old growth amendments across all these units of the Forest Service is designed to implement basically new restrictions on timber harvesting, which, as Dick already pointed out, and you, Dan, the timber industries have largely already been hamstrung through the spotted owl issue and other issues through the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and as Dick said, with this Region 5 and 6 planning process and the old growth amendments, they're just perpetuating uh, their errors and following executive directives in contravention to congressional law. And the problem is our Congress is so dysfunctional that we're not seeing a lot of forced compliance of these departments uh, to to the law. We, we see these department heads being drug in and questioned by the Congress, but it seems the Congress has... Um, allowed the leash in relationship to oversight of these agencies to get so far that they have a hard time even reining in rulemaking that affects multi-states, multi-jurisdictions, local economies. So it's, it's really concerning uh, that that's happening and that's, it's all top down um, in many respects. And it's the people on the ground, as Dick was alluding to, the local wood products folks and the local communities and counties that depend on those resources that we're losing our ability to make a living. Um, and I use Montana as a perfect example. We're, uh, they called it the treasure state. That's our, I guess I'd say, uh, state logo is the treasure state. And it's because we log, we mine, we have ranching and farming and we're a natural resource state 
short a time ago as in uh, 1970, and it actually, I, I saw the statistics printed back to 1960, we were one of the very, very highest per capita income states in the country. I believe we were number seven in the country in per capita income. Now we're number 49, and it's because the environmental lobby has, has come in and basically they've captured the Congress and the legislature and the federal agencies, and now uh, we've shut down most of the natural resource industries in the state of Montana. And Dick, you said the same thing. Uh, state of Washington, a huge uh, timber state, and because of uh, environmentalists, it's pretty much shut down the whole the whole timber industry statewide. And I imagine uh, mining is also part of what's been shut down with all this uh, environmental regulation. And I'm going to make a statement here, and I want you guys to respond to it. Um, we are living in a new form of fascism where uh, private NGOs have so much control, so much power, and so much money that they are literally buying out the federal agencies, the state agencies, and uh, various elected leaders through um, campaign contributions and so forth. And we, we've got a battle going on right now between the communists and the fascists uh, trying to control our country. Yeah, I would uh, certainly agree with that because what you have to the uh, ESG investing, you have the linking of corporate money and interest with the government, which is basically a definition of fascism. And uh, this is facilitated by the environmental movement because everything that they have done to this point in terms of preserving nature is if uh, it's already public land, the government must do this. If it's private land, it must be purchased and donated to the government. So you see that transfer from the private sector through uh, activism into the public uh, ownership of land. And so here you have the centralization of an answer around government economic control. This to me is also uh, reflects the basic heart of man because if you look at the problem that we have in constitutional government that's making this difficult to deal with is that people are ignoring the constitution and getting away with it because they can do so for their own personal advantage. But nobody is being honorable enough to work within the framework of the Constitution for the benefit of everybody as a whole, which is what the Constitution is in the process or should be uh, doing for our country. It's for the benefit of the people, their freedom, preserving liberties, ability to use resources and have a job out of their own creativity. So all of these are being hampered. Uh, and we're willing to listen to voices outside of our country 
who may in some way give us power to do this. So that's where the World Economic Forum and various organizations like that mm -hmm. and the banking community work together against constitutional principles for their supposed new world order. So we have that problem. Mm -hmm. Spot on. Dick, you, you hit it right on the head. You're perfect. Uh, Nathan, talk about some of the things that you're working on around the country now. You're, you're doing a program. You're trying to uh, get started doing some work in Kansas and other uh, parts of the country. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that and how that is uh, trying to tackle this uh I guess uh, what what we would call rulemaking agenda, and uh, make government accountable again to the people. Yeah, so I'll speak to that a little bit, and then I'm going to revert back to the what Dick just alluded to with the ESG stuff. But um, well, why don't you do that first? I I didn't mean to get you off no, the subject. I'd love to have have you uh, continue with that because. I'm the one that said we're living in a new form of uh, fascism and uh, and asked you guys for your responses. And I guess uh, I want to hear yours, too. Well, and so that boils down. to So my response, I can boil it down, start at the high level and then boil it down to the, the importance of the county level and the way our system's set up. The United States government under a constitution has very strong home rule principles. Counties, some municipalities and counties, most states have home rule powers. There's a lot of jurisdictional responsibility and power at the aggre aggregated at the local level. Um, and it's those local elected officials' responsibility to represent the property rights interests, preserve the tax base, and make sure their federal and state counterparts in government are also keeping their covenants, following law, and implementing the law. Because this is an ancient question. It's the law, the old saying, Henry D. Bracton, I think, said, the king is subject to no man, but only to, the, to God and to the law. That was the break between the divine right of kings and the rule of law. And the whole argument of the Protestant Reformation was that even the king is under the law. So we have a system in the West that's based on the rule of law and separation of powers, and that boils down to our local level and in our country. Let me let me just connect. It's crazy. What's crazy is how the ESG stuff and the Security and Exchange Commission stuff in the in the in the finance world is actually an issue that local governments across this country have developed a very keen concern over mm -hmm. because these financial objectives and this partnership, this unholy alliance between government and the finance realm to force economic transitions, whole of government, whole of economy, that's the language in the executive orders. I, I developed some comment on the Security and Exchange Commission rule where the New York Stock Exchange applied to the SEC to allow natural asset companies to be marketed on the exchange. That rule was withdrawn later and here recently, actually. But when I sent the comments I drafted to, to the client I was working with on that rule, and I put a note in the email and said, isn't it 
isn't it isn't it amazing that these are the issues relevant issues that local governments have to concern themselves with dealing with top-down international finance in conjunction with an overzealous executive branch to implement policies and regulations and cash flows in such a way that forces the producers and consumers in this country down pathways of, that is not of their own choosing. And that's where we are. So it's, 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 it's astounding that, that at the county level and the local level, we're even having to deal with um, these types of issues. But for example, here's an example. The Security and Exchange Commission is the top financial regulator in the nation. Um, and they issued a rule April 11th, 2022, that required publicly traded companies to disclose climate-related risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on its business, result of operations or financial conditions. And this rule is not finalized yet. It's still in process. It's going to be finalized coming coming up. And there were 16 state governors that signed a joint letter in opposition to this rule saying the SEC's congressionally directed mission is to protect investors, facilitate capital formation, and maintain fairly or fair, orderly, and efficient markets. The proposed rule degrades and undermines that mission by injecting subjective political judgments on climate policy into corporate disclosures in a manner calculated to harm the states that provide for America's energy security. So what those governors ultimately are saying is these, uh, this rule that requires this climate disclosure in relationship to carbon outputs from publicly traded companies is designed to target our traditional fossil fuel-based industries in the nation. So that rule is a part of an ongoing effort across the federal government to penalize companies involved in traditional energy development and that's that's yet to come out in a finalized rule, but that's out there uh, percolating right now and will come out, um, probably will be litigated if it comes out as a final rule. So there's there's some big issues with finance and and in the merging with regulations and policies uh, that drives market transaction that is um, so back to the fascist context you're talking about it, it fits the term pretty well to have that alliance between the banking powers and the finance arena internationally with the federal government and some states um, in such a way that sells out other states in the union uh, to international influence. Huge problem. And in counties, you know, the EPA, for example, is just issued a rule uh, last month to for 50 years, EPA has only regulated direct discharges from meat pack, uh, plant, uh, packing plant facilities, and now they want to, uh, out of nowhere, start regulating indirect discharges. And this reaches down and affects, and all of this is based on you know ecological services, ecological benefits, uh, environmental justice. Um, those are the terms in these rules. Those are the benefits being uh, put forward in these rules. Meanwhile, it's further regulating and reaching the general government into the hearts and corners of our states and counties, making the cost of staying in business, because regulations increase costs, These this EPA rule would force pretreatment and new filtration systems on many meat uh, packing facilities that are not currently being regulated by the EPA. 
and they would impose this on them and they either pass those costs back upstream to the producer or they pass them downstream to the consumer if they stay open or they shut or they close their doors and they shut down. So for states like Kansas and Nebraska and even the downstream impacts to the domestic livestock industry and the feed feeder markets, there's a lot of potential implications. So local governments are becoming much and more, much more concerned about how executive decision-making and policy is affecting their ability to govern their own personal affairs at the local level. Well, ultimately that I think is the, uh, the goal of all these, uh, these programs and it's to implement uh, enough rules and regulations that they can literally force people off of the uh, natural environment, out of the countryside and uh, this is part of Agenda 21. They want to re, re uh, uh, pre-Columbian wilderness the the largest part of the Western United States, and uh, they they want us to act as if a man had never been here. And for some reason, they don't think uh, indigenous people are men uh, because they don't seem to count. In indigenous people that are, are the basis of a new science that that is being implemented by the EPA and different federal agencies. And a lot of times the what they say and what they do are totally the opposite of the reality of what happened. For example, Dick, you can chime in on this. Uh, Native Americans historically would uh, burn sections of the forest because they recognized that uh, an overgrown mature forest uh, would be impossible for game. There wouldn't be grass, there wouldn't be forage, there wouldn't be things like that. And Native Americans were pretty common on burning forests and, uh, and starting fires because they knew that it would actually uh, improve the health of the forest. I'm, you know, I, anyway, I want to get you back into the conversation, Dick. Well, I think there's a number of things here. One <clears throat> that I could comment to take off on uh, Nate's point a little bit. <clears throat> the ESG just doesn't affect companies, but it affects the people who must purchase or have relationships for those with those companies like insurance or medical care. So it does it this way. For example, uh, we have State Farm insurance for our automobiles. So in the last year, last year and a half, our rates have gone up $160 per car per payment period. So what's interesting is that I also found out that State Farm has fully embraced ESG investing and is seeking to uh, increase its ESG score. Mm. And part of the way that they're doing that is uh, working on the diversity side where they've actually supported various LGBTQ uh, organizations and uh, so forth. And I don't know exactly what activities they sponsored, but the point being is 
what they're doing is using my money in the premium context to pay for this ESG things that I have no input on to control. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing then is they're using the ESG approach to facilitate an agenda and pay for it through pleasing the American people to support it, even though they have no voice in it. That's mm -hmm. a very uh, key issue. Then going back to the indigenous knowledge, it is quite true, particularly in the Pacific Northwest tribes that I'm a little more familiar with, they've actually cultivated the forest for a certain uh, food material that they particularly enjoy. And so they've actually created kind of a forest garden to get those things. And then they also realize that if they let the forest alone uh, and don't burn it, they lose that investment because of the forest fire issue. Mm -hmm. But the other point that's kind of interesting why they use fire, and it's a great example here, when you have a forest fire move through a forest, all of a sudden you have a tremendous harvest of morel mushrooms. So fire was used as a stimulant to grow certain things like morel mushrooms and clear the way for uh, the crops they were interested in to be for foraging to propagate. Mm -hmm. So that was very much the case. And then when you go to the question of naturalism, we've had the Indians here all oh, since probably four to 6,000 BC in the North Americans uh, region. And they were quite a large population when Columbus first came. So how can you really say that the natural environment is the original pristine environment if already it was predate, uh, affected by human intervention? So humans always have to intervene with the environment to have the prosperity necessary to support human life. And that is something that is uh, not realized in the naturalism that is going on right now. So uh, that was kind of my point there. And then the other thing is, I don't know, I don't know if you mentioned this, but there's the idea of now pulling the tribes in to provide indigenous knowledge and co-stewardship of our public lands. So yeah, we, we have... Uh... As a matter of fact, that's what I was hoping you would talk about. So the indigenous knowledge is basically a bunch of uh, anecdotal stories of what tribes used to do to live on the land. The problem with anecdotal stories is that they're based upon the uh, life forms of the tribes, which is a subsistence living within the framework of what nature provides up to the extent of knowledge that they had to manipulate nature. So uh, today, we would not have the population supported the way it is without increasing the productivity of agriculture and going towards more of an agricultural basis rather than a subsistence basis. So indigenous knowledge is being used for the benefit of the tribe so that in the reserves that they're producing in the forest, 
they can now continue to subsistence and fulfill treaty obligations to continue to harvest the products in forest structures that I, in the way that they used to. So there's two things going on here, is uh, trying to facilitate the idea that tribes continue to live on a subsistence level if we manage the forest for that purpose. And also, uh, it facilitates the agenda of ecosystem management back to a nature uh, thing rather than a balance between human use of the environment and maintaining the ecological structure of that environment at the same time. So uh, it's a way to reduce uh, the human intrusion into the environment as well. So that's part of the agenda. So that's kind of my basic view of indigenous knowledge at this point. Well, I think that's pretty well described and pretty solid knowledge. Uh, you know, the one thing that I always uh, I always like to look at is the fact that uh, we're we're talking basically a Stone Age culture prior to uh, the Western Europeans and Columbus landing on the continent. Um, you know, we hear a lot of fables, but they are fables. You know, talking about how the Indian was uh, Native American was just one uh, in nature with a horse. Well, horses didn't exist in uh, the United States other than these little uh, tiny, about the size of a, uh, maybe uh, the size of a Labrador uh, in Southern Florida. They had a kind of a, a dawn horse type horse in Southern Florida. But other than that, there weren't any horses in the Americas until the Spaniards brought them over. And, you know, when they'd, uh, for example, when they'd chase a herd of bison over a cliff uh, so that they could, uh, you know, they could harvest the bison, uh, they might kill a thousand animals or break legs and, and uh, leave a thousand hobbled animals that are just kind of staggering around for the dozen or so that they might actually cut up and use. Uh, there was not a, a lot of uh, really, really good ecological care taken uh, by Stone Age cultures. It just didn't work that way. You're, you're limited with what your resources are and what your capabilities are. And I'm getting sick of all these fables and uh, phony scientific theories that are based on complete, if you'll pardon my French, complete bullshit. Yeah, well, I think there's a, a point to that because what's being failed to recognize is the fact that up to their understanding of knowledge with the environment at the time, they were still manipulators of the environment. So on the plains level, in order to cultivate the numerous buffalo that they depended on, they burned out uh, large parts of the forest structure to have grasslands. And that's why there were so many buffalo when the settlers arrived, as they were actually cultivated buffalo. So that's uh, what's missing in the story, just because it's ancient knowledge and that's stored in a ancient tree doesn't somehow make it better uh, than what we're doing now. Right. Uh, I, I would submit that um, <laughs> it runs directly counter to 
Well, like the National Environmental Policy Act, even surprisingly enough, right at the outset says that Congress directs the um, productive harmony. Productive harmony is very different from subsistence har- harmony, as Dick was alluding to with tribal knowledge. So productive harmony is the mandate and statute and law in relationship to active management of the resources. Dick mentions ancient knowledge with tribal knowledge and indigenous knowledge, but the thing that's not considered on the European context, because the Europeans and the settlers, which largely brought civilization into the West, are blamed for degrading biodiversity and all these all these different things. But the Data Quality Act requires reproducible information uh, for federal decision makings, de- decision making. So that's reproducible information. There's integrity standards uh, that need to be met. So when the European settlers came out west, they didn't just break ground and and settle. They they brought with them uh, the scriptures, which represents an unbroken continuity of historical record going back to the original creation biblically but also the genealogies of the history of man in the world, the carrying of those scriptures through the European nations and the Roman Roman Empire and the Greek Orthodox Empire and the flooding of those into Europe. And that foundation, the Judeo-Christian ethic and foundation, served as the presuppositional basis for the establishment of modern government in the context of what we understand right so to so to shift a tribal or indigenous knowledge which is which is a foreign pantheistic based presupposition and and, and introduce that into policy and regulation decision making runs counter to that unbroken continuity of historical record through the judeo-christian ethic and common law back to what i said earlier about our founding fathers they alluded to they reached hundreds of years back to make their case for the Declaration of Independence and the establishment of the United States of America. And when they, after they had independence, there was all these Western territories that were ceded by overthrowing Britain to the Congress of the United States of America. And the Congress decided, and this started with Thomas Jefferson to some extent, with the Louisiana Purchase, Thomas Jefferson also was an anti-federalist. He already was seeing the centralization of power and and control in the executive and judicial branches. So I've been persuaded that the Louisiana Purchase and the early homestead laws that the Congress passed and the Northwest Ordinance was an effort to decentralize federal power and control by creating distinct Republican states and disposing of lands held in trust to private appropriation. And as a result, that populated the Western territories with hundreds of thousands of independent sovereign people who with the permanent improvement and habitation of lands was transferred full D to that property by the Congress of the United States of America. Another thing the enabling legislation for states, for instance, did and the disposal laws did is it established what we call in to this day school sections. Anybody that's dealt with state policy and law and land and resource understands 
uh, the system of state school sections. And you know what those school sections were designed to do? To provide a, a section of land retained by the state to provide a schoolhouse for the purpose of literary training of the rural people scattered into who homesteaded these states. And why, why did the Congress, in disposing of the lands to the states and giving them the right to set up their own sovereign constitution, a compound republic, why did they dispose of lands to states for state school sections to give literacy to the, com to the farmer out on the ground? So they could read for themselves mm -hmm. that unbroken continuity of historical record in the scriptures, and our common law heritage, that is the basis of our constitutional republic. To introduce indigenous knowledge, to be a driving force of agency decisions and policy that touches lands outside of tribal nation, in the hearts and corners of our states and counties, who have 10th Amendment reserved powers, is, in my opinion, not structurally appropriate because the tribal governments in those tribal nations are still regulated under the Commerce Clause by the Congress. States are not, with the exception of the lands they've retained in the states, and that's part of the problem. I would submit that those lands retained by the federal government in the state, all this Forest Service and BLM lands, the, the Congress has no trust responsibility in Article One to perpetually retain and, and preserve a federal land empire in a nation of states. That's right. And that is what uh, is happening, and it gives huge leverage to the federal government to control the internal affairs of states. But back to the point I was getting at, in contrast to indigenous knowledge, which has no written verifiable record, the Judeo-Christian ethic and the Europeans who settled and appropriated these lands under the federal congressional laws— is the, is the bedrock and the foundation for how our governments to function and all those different elements. So we need to be careful in these shifts of policy and law. And I would submit part of the reason we're seeing policy and law shifting so drastically in our country is because our people have been severed from that heritage. We have forgotten where we have come from as a people. Therefore, we are no longer leaders. We're followers. Right. And you can't have self-government without self discipline and personal responsibility and you can't bury your head in the dirt and focus on football and basketball and lose your country at the same time so we need to really reconnect with that heritage and it, it, it ties into the indigenous knowledge stuff because that's one of many examples of how they're ridiculing the european settlers for faults that are not theirs they were actually highly industrious people freedom-loving people respectable people and honorable people and lived under the law and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be standing today and letting it's kind of like david and goliath goliath is strutting around in the camp mocking god and mocking the people of god or mocking the heritage of the nation mm -hmm. and david wasn't going to put up with that he he got a sling and a stone and he dealt with it so we shouldn't be content with the efforts to try to shame us into having a bad view of our forefathers who were some of the, the greatest men produced in the history of the world.
Nathan, I couldn't agree more. We are being forced to accept that our founding fathers and our heritage, our Western European heritage, was was racist. It was it was hateful. It was designed to steal and take away from some uh, to the benefit of others, and on and on and on. And when you go back to our fundamental uh, national laws and our, our framework, it always goes back to the rights of the individual, but it also goes back to the responsibility of individuals, of stewardship, of ownership, of acceptance of responsibility. That is a huge part of the whole process that seems to somehow get uh, pushed under the rug. But the fact is, if you're going to be a, uh, a, a sovereign individual, you have responsibilities with that. And, and so you've got a uh, responsibility to be good stewards of everything you do. It's because the capital, which is the means of production in lands and resources in our nation, it's because they're disaggregated among many individuals acting independent from one another, no one person has total control over us. So not only do we central, see centralizing economy, they want to centralize economy and they want to centralize government, but I would submit they want to also centralize sovereignty. The compound republic our, our founders established was a disaggregation of units of sovereign person. And I'm going to, in that context, share something to, to express this, and then I'll, then I'll defer back to, to Dick. The Sackett versus the EPA was a May 25th, 2023 decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. Thomas J. concurred with the opinion of the court, and I just want to read some of what is stated in his concurrence because it speaks to this compound republic and the supremacy of states uh, and the sovereign units, I should say, of states and even individuals. Thomas says in the concurrence, he says, but critically, the statutory terms navigable waters, in the case, this case in particular was over whether what degree the EPA could regulate waters of the United States. So this case clarified the definition of waters of the United States and confined it to actual navigable systems and only wetlands that are directly adjacent and connected to them. So he says, critically, the statutory terms navigable waters, navigable waters of the United States and waters of the United States were still understood as invoking only Congress's authority over waters that are, were, or could be used as highways or interstate or foreign commerce. And he's speaking of that historically. And he says, the court correctly states, land and water use lies at the core of traditional state authority. Prior to independence, the crown, England, possessed sovereignty over navigable waters in the colonies, sometimes held in trust by colonial authorities. In the colonial period, the crown had power and regulatory control over the navigable systems of the colonies. So it's not a new issue. And the court, Thomas goes on and says, upon independence, and that's the war with England, where we secured independence from England as a sovereign uh, United States. Upon independence, 
this sovereignty was transferred to each of the 13 fully sovereign states. When the revolution took place, the people of each state became themselves sovereign. And in that character, hold the absolute right to all their navigable waters and the soils under them for their own common use, subject only to the rights since surrendered by the Constitution to the general government. Thus, today, states enjoy primary sovereignty over their waters, including navigable waters, stemming either from their stat status as independent sovereigns following independence or their latter admission to the Union on an equal footing with the original states. What is that alluding to? What is that saying? It's saying the states, the 13 existing states, as soon as they overthrew England, they became independent sovereigns and got full jurisdiction and absolute right to their navigable systems of water. And, and, then, the, and then the states enjoyed that, the original states, and then the court says and extends that to those distinct Republican states that eventually will be carved out of the Western territories with equal footing with the original states. And that's from Lessee of Pollard versus Hagen, Supreme Court, 1845. And it states, the shores of navigable waters and the soils under them were not granted by the Constitution to the United States, but were reserved to the states respectively. The new states have the same rights, sovereignty, and jurisdiction over this subject as the original states. The federal government, therefore, possesses no authority over navigable waters except that granted by the Constitution. And then this concurrence goes on and expounds on the limited power of Congress over navigable waters and, and cites the history there. But I just wanted to read that because that parallels directly with what I just described of how our Western territories, how our founding fathers propagated, they're establishing the colonial, the United States, they, they propagated that across the Western territories to the people so that they could set up distinct Republican states. As soon as population thresholds were met, set up their own constitutions and govern their internal affairs with full sovereign jurisdiction within their boundaries with equal footing to the original states. That's what's under assault. The overreaching power of executive edict, the modern royal prerogative, is usurping, and some states are doing it willingly, those sovereign spheres and allowing the federal government to centralize that. Uh, and that's where we are. But anyways, I'll leave it. At, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, and even at that, Nathan, I I, uh, I want to say that it I we could only wish that it would stop at the federal level. Now they're ceding a lot of that same authority to international uh, powers, to international elites and international governments, basically, you know, the UN. Uh, Dick, I, I want to bring you back into this discussion. So uh, please uh, continue with the thought. Well, a little bit of uh, what I would say, too, going and tying this in with the indigenous knowledge, is that even the public lands that were left after the settlement period were reserved to the American people for the purpose of providing 
the resources necessary to support the American people in the United States. So when you come to the issue of, say, tribal coal stewardship, uh, what you're looking at that they're trying to do is bring tribal, use indigenous knowledge to bring tribal knowledge so that their experience and perspectives can be in, integral in the public's experience of federal land management. Now that's a that's the goal of cold stewardship. So that means that they're opening the door for the tribes to give their input and recommendations on the management of public lands outside of the fiduciary responsibility of the U.S. government to the tribes. So Nate hit upon this idea of, well, what is the relationship between tribal governments and our government and to the public? Well, even in the Land Manning, Planning Management Act, like the Federal Land Planning Management Act, specifically says there's two tiers of uh, coordination. One is between governments. So when you do land use planning, you must include state, local, federal governments, agencies, and tribes. Then when you, uh, you also have what is called a public hearing process, where you do include state, local governments, and the public. But in that process, tribes are not included. And that's because they do not have jurisdiction over the affairs of the people who are citizens of the United States in reference to their use of property rights and so forth that are necessary for our own self-governance. So why the original idea was called a government-to-government -government coordination is because the tribes are considered historically as sovereign governments. Right. And therefore, they do not have the rights as long as they operate as a sovereign government to the rights of the United States citizen. They are allowed even to have their own laws and jurisdiction on the uh, the treaty rights, the trusted lands, and privileges that were granted through treaty or uh, various other land trusts related to their previous occupation. Those are all done by treaty. Also, tribes are managed by both the president, but primarily by Congress because the president can't enter into a treaty with a tribe, just like the federal government can't expand the treaty of a tribe because that's subject to two thirds consent of the Senate. Mm -hmm. Because the uh, senators have a say over tribal authority and treaties. Same way, Congress is the only regular regulating authority in terms of treaty rights. And so under the current idea of co-stewardship, there is no extension by Congress legally to extend their rights beyond the fiducial rights as a sovereign dependent 
tribes. Mm -hmm. So that's the uh, real issue that we have with uh, coal stewardship. They are to be treated as sovereign governments, not as citizens. Right, right. And even at that, Native American people are allowed to vote in uh, federal elections, even though they are sovereigns in a so their own sovereign country. So, you know, there's, um, I guess it's interesting to me how, how uh, it's almost like they, almost like they've got uh, an opportunity to enter into a lot of policy decisions on private land in the Western U.S., and yet have no uh, financial responsibility whatsoever. It, it's like a free ride, basically. Well, that's a little bit of the issue here is because um, if you look at the salmon issue in the West, the settlement in the tribe's direction was 50% of the harvestable salmon. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's well beyond uh, the hunting and fishing rights, in other words, but they have been given 50% of the harvestable Columbia River salmon. So it goes in their direction, but the consequences that we experience in getting to that point, they don't have to experience. For one thing, uh, a tribal nation is not wealth creating. It's basically dependent upon the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the subsidies that are provided to each tribe. So some tribes have managed to become more independent, like the Menominee Indians in Wisconsin, who have become very independent, have their own timber industry, and employ their people. But not all tribes are in that position. The Cherokee in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. with uh, the the oil production there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, you have a problem here in how to deal with tribes because as a sovereign nation, that's one thing. But we've tried to integrate the tribes, and so individually they can have U.S. citizenship, which allows them to mm -hmm. vote. The preferential direction for them to go is to integrate with the United States rather than maintain independent sovereign status. If they had to stand alone and we didn't subsidize them, that wouldn't even be able to exist. So mm -hmm. that's uh, a bit of an issue there in terms of having them understand how they can maintain some of their religious points of view, freedom of religion, while also uh, participating in a constitutional form of government. Right. So we've never solved that issue, and it kind of is an issue <laughs> I'm seeing involves both sides. Well, I, I, I don't think anybody would argue that uh, uh, certainly government, uh, the federal U.S. government uh, at times was uh, very uneven and very heavy-handed and uh, almost uh, genocidal toward uh, Native American populations. And for that, there is an accountability, or should be. No. But um, on the other side of the coin, I think we all recognize that over a, a period of millennia, 
virtually everybody at some point in time was a slave or a servant of another culture. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. And I guess my comment is, is we need to get over it. We need to learn to play together on a common playing field and understand that individual rights are the absolute cornerstone of any life of real happiness. But with that uh, individual uh, human rights and sovereignty requires responsibility. So not only do you get the rights, you have the responsibility of protecting those rights by living in a way that is, I guess what I would say, uh, responsible uh, to other people to maintain that uh, individual sovereignty. Well, I think uh, that's quite right. I think the uh, uh, understanding of how, even how Europe developed, it was through a process of conquest and then uh, consolidation into independent mm -hmm. nation states. And uh, that was uh, eventually affected by uh, Christian principles because uh, Christianity invented, for example, the uh, Bill of Lading, where you could get spices and stuff from uh, China in uh, England and expect them to be delivered. There is mm -hmm. a trust compact developed uh, in the West that was not a functional contract before that invention. Then you also have the idea, well, we have these plagues and everything happening because anybody with an army comes through, strips the farms of all the food to supply their army and their agenda. And we have to protect the farmer if we're going to have a country because we don't have any food to survive. And so that is kind of the... Uh, going back to, that's the reason behind the concept of Christian personal property rights. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened and was instigated with the creation of Israel in their land. God gave them each property to prosper. And uh, so you have to preserve that right. And those were things that were developed over some pretty hard times. So we come into the Americas and we rearranged the whole economic status of the tribal uh, economy, which was basically power control and joint occupancy of sphere of land for a tribe to secure its prosperity. And we come in with private property. Well, it's a better system, and that's why eventually uh, it won out, but it was at a great expense to the tribes in terms of persons and trying to understand and comprehend what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I don't fault that disjunction, but I think the uh, important point that you made is that eventually a superior order gets put into place. And the real question is, are we willing to maintain the better order under a just form of law? Mm -hmm. And I think we're at a crisis now philosophically where it's somewhat similar to the Civil War where the whole concept of the rule of law broke down over the issue of slavery. 
And that was Lincoln's position, is this could only be solved without war through a rule of law. And the central issue was the Dred Scott decision where a prejudice court that was primarily uh, stocked with uh, Southern Democrats decided that a slave was not a person. And so there you had the breakdown of uh, the whole system of constitutional law by the Supreme Court at that particular time, where it now led to, well, how do you resolve a, something that the courts ultimately aren't going to be w willing to resolve? Well, you know, Dick, you, you've got a, a, a reasonable man's framework here. You're, you're thinking like a reasonable human being. <laughs> and that is what's at a, a premium right now at the uh, federal international level is the fact that uh, we, we, we try to categorize things and try to destroy historical fact and turn it into a political narrative. And, um, you know, slavery is a perfect example. Uh, you know, we hear now through the 1619 Project that America was a racist country that was created to perpetuate slavery, and that's absolutely not true. Uh, the Founding Fathers did not want slavery, but they also recognized that half of the states of the original, the original 13 colonies Fully half of them uh, did recognize slavery, not because, um, well, it was for economic reasons. It's always the same thing. It always goes back to who follows the money, you know. But anyway, they accepted it so that we could put together a country, a nation of uh, sovereign states and gave the independence of each state to maintain certain levels of law so that they could, over time, create a, a better nation because some of these things undoubtedly, and I know our founders knew this, undoubtedly things like slavery eventually would not have an economic foundation. They wouldn't make any sense because at the same time that slavery existed in the South, uh, things like the cotton gin and mechanized farm implements and things like that were coming in through the Industrial Revolution and were creating an opportunity for more people to prosper and to utilize this wonderful industrial technology to free men from slavery that was from subsistence living exactly exactly so that's that's i think that's the crux of it is it was actually the freedoms propagated by our system just like you so well put there dan that what what our what our, what our forefathers did is they substitute because remember taxation is a form of slavery too heavy progressive tax on your fruit of your labor and our, found, our forefathers substituted economy for taxation predominantly. So economic development and innovation 
And the thing is, if we go, if we do away with fossil fuels and our traditional sources of energy, like they want us to, they're going to resubjugate the population to more of a subsistence framework. And that's where you get indentured servitude and back to the slavery uh, context. And just, just a quick note on the indigenous knowledge. I just want to clarify something on my statement earlier. Um, I'm not in any way whatsoever um, in my statement of standing firmly on European, European heritage um, coming against tribes. I, my, my, my grandpa's brother married a lady on the Hayes Lodgepole reservation, ran cattle there. I've been to his ranch. I have rocks carved, carved rocks with, uh, just Indian artifacts and different things. But what I've seen, the, 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 the exploitation of the tribes through a Marxist class framework from the federal government is kind of what's happening. I, we, we picked up a hitchhiker coming from Billings, a couple of them, big storm was rolling in. It was a couple Indians from Canada actually, but they were going to Hayes Lodgepole, picked them up and talked with them, dropped them off at grass range and talked with them on the way. And we talked about gardening and he talked about how his grandmother was developed a very successful uh, garden and a market to the tribal community. And, and this is in Canada, I believe. And, he's, and he explained how as soon as she became very profitable, the tribal government came and collectivized her business. Mm. So we got to remember part of the reason the tribes, the sovereign nations and tribes have been stagnated over time is because there's been a more of a communist model uh, in a dull system, as Dick alluded to, um, some tribes have broke from that, and many individual Indians have broke from that and left just like a Hooterite leaves a Hooterite colony or somebody le leaves this place or that place have left that and have become successful in engaging in the market and providing for themselves and, and their neighbor, etc. So with all that said, it's Dan, you said it earlier, it's the rights of the individual, doesn't matter what color of skin you have, how old you are, what sex you are. We have roles and we have a purpose in society to to maintain liberty. And if we if we allow the exploitation to take place of of our resources and locking everything up, we're not going to be a prosperous people, and we won't be able to perpetuate into to future generations the things we've taken for granted and our conveniences as a result of man's dominion over, not over man constitution doesn't grant man's dominion over his fellow man, but our, and neither does the Bible, but our dominion over the livestock, the beasts of the field and the land. Mm -hmm. And that dominion is based on utilizing, converting raw material resources to market, to merchantable products, useful for the benefit of our neighbor and ourselves in the world. And 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 stewardship is not something that uh, comes naturally from an overwhelming control by a government agency. Stewardship, real stewardship, and, and being uh, able to protect the land and protect the resources only comes when you have the freedom to utilize those resources for a profit motive. And as stewardship has a Christian core to it, because as a, a Christian being, you have you know that you have a responsibility to your fellow man, but it's through stewardship 
and uh, wise choices rather than controlling them. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'd like to interject a thought here. That's a little different, but I think you'll see where it fits. Propositionally, in the West, we have gone under a very big philosophical change that is actually hindering the issue, uh, promoting the issues that we are talking about. So intellectually, we moved away from understanding that God is important and central, beginning in Europe and coming over to the United States. And what that does is that there is no accountability or reference point for truth once you remove God out of the picture. Right. That's right. So what we've gone into is uh, philosophically from propositional truth to what I would call existential truth. So remember, the religious and secular existentialism was seeking to find a higher intuition uh, to understand how to live life or find meaning. Because once you take God away, there's no meaning either. Mm -hmm. So this has eventually led into what I call mysticism. So uh, existentialism is a form of mysticism that's not unlike the Eastern mysticism of India. So you're looking for intuitive or existential knowledge that comes outside of the realm of reason. So what we have now moved into as a result of that is that there is no absolute truth. That means there's no foundation for what you would call a consistent law, no uh, apologetic for morals, and so in that context, what we're dealing with is how do you get people to arrive at a different, uh, a good, reasonable solution when they've already denied the premise of absolute truth? Really excellent, Dick. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure glad you joined us in this conversation. I have a, a whole new uh, perspective of you, uh, even better than the one I had before. Uh, a very thoughtful man, very uh, very deep thinker. I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm pleased that uh, you, you were part of this conversation. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Appreciate being here. Yeah, yeah well, I I, uh, I look forward to another uh, conversation. I hate to say it, but we're running out of time. Um, Nathan, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you're doing very quickly in Kansas and then what the organization that you're setting up to uh, provide uh, landowners and farmers and ranchers, people in the uh, natural resource field uh, with a forum to move forward to uh, protect their individual rights. Yeah, so I guess that goal from my perspective is, I wouldn't say that's just Kansas per se. I'm working on things that are more cross-cutting. Uh, Montana is my focal point, but then there's, uh, I had an opportunity to testify before a Senate subcommittee in Kansas on foreign adversarial investments in lands and then present on home rule uh, for under Kansas statute at a policy meeting. But 
so those things are unraveling uh working working on multiple fronts just trying to bring bring individual local people's voice into the process and but anyways uh appreciate uh coming on the program again dan mm-hmm. and what dick just closed on I, there's that's a good that'd be a good next program is kind of what dick closed on but thanks yeah. again for having us on well thank you both for being guests and i i uh i, I love these conversations dick i uh i speak with uh nathan quite often off air and we have some great conversations together and he always when, when it comes to talking about uh, private property property rights uh understanding of natural resources and so forth uh, he holds you as uh, in the very highest regard, and I see why, because uh, you are a very deep thinker, just like Nathan is. And uh, I, I look forward to this conversation again soon. Uh, we, we could just keep going. If we had uh, six hours, we could probably fill it. <laughs> no question about it. Well, thank you both for being our guest, and uh, Thank you all for joining us for Connecting the Dots. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee across the plains of Texas oh from sea to shining sea from Detroit down to Houston to LA where there's pride in every American heart and it's time we stand and